Welcome to the RH Podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit our website at www.recursive.house. Hello, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. All right, all right. Very excited to have you on. This is one I was really looking forward to, and I'm sure the people will as well. I want you to explain exactly who you are and just give the people a short synopsis of where you work, what you do, and your experience, things of that nature. Sure. Yeah. Sean Caulfield. I'm a senior software architect. I've been in that role at various companies now for about two decades. I work for an online dating company right now, and we have about 40 dating sites in over a dozen languages and a global community of users. I was fortunate enough to get started with programming. When I was a kid, my dad bought me a programmable calculator, and I was instantly hooked and thought the ability to tell computers what to do was just fascinating. I went on to do math and computer science and and got to learn a lot of fun languages at university, and that sparked my interest in languages. So when I got started in industry, I actually worked on compilers and runtime systems and test suites and got involved with standards. So I was on the C++ ANSI standards committee for eight years in the 90s, and then gradually drifted into web development because that's what a a lot of the companies and clients I was working with were doing. And finally ended up in the US, I was born and raised in the UK, ended up working for Macromedia for six years and Adobe for a year as their senior software architect overseeing all of the large internal projects at Macromedia. Then I went freelance for a while, was mostly advising people on coding standards and architecture of systems, and then ended up at the dating company where I've been for the last decade. So I've been enjoying that. That's amazing. You have quite a robust experience. So if we talk about the C++, how was that? What was it like at that time? You know, how did it, how it did was it a really interesting time. I got involved with the standards stuff in uh, very early 92. Uh, and I got involved initially at the British Standards Institute um, just because I was working in compilers and language systems. And fairly quickly, once I'd been attending meetings there, I got voted to be the principal UK expert on the ISO committee at most of the meetings through the 90s. And then I decided to join WG16, which was the NCC plus committee, and work on that. And so it was really interesting to see how the, the sausages are made working behind the scenes, actually looking at language features, trying to figure out how to specify a language feature. And of course, back then, early 90s, Straustrup's book was, it it covered the basics of the language, but there were still some language features that were in design. So templates were still being worked on a lot. Namespaces were being worked on a lot. And so a lot of the stuff around that was things we had to go in and design and, and figure out how they should all work. And talk about a, a, a room full of like just crazy smart people. It, it was amazing to work with them. My very first meeting, I went into the ISO meeting, which is always the night before the main meeting, and sat down at the table. And this tall, um, slim guy across 
looked up from his book and goes, who are you and what are you doing here? And I said, I'm Sean Caulfield. I'm, I'm the UK representative this year. And a guy at the other end of the table said, oh, don't worry about him. That's Dark Brook. He's like that with everyone. And introduced himself and it was Sam Harbison. Wow. And then just had this stream of people whose books and columns in magazines I'd read started coming in. And I was like, oh my God, why am I here? All these people are just, you know, world-renowned experts. And they put you at ease and you gradually get used to it and you find yourself working with them as a really hard problems. And I found that that kind of pattern repeated as new people joined the committee because they would come to it from their companies as a rep and be very much like, oh my God, look at all these authors and, and world-renowned speakers. And then they'd settle in and you'd find various people would be leading various language groups. And it, it was a really interesting experience for someone who has an interest in languages as I do. Absolutely amazing. That's a very rare opportunity. And what I got from that is what it's like to work with like really smart people, what that experience is like. Because a lot of people who are joining and you know, I always advise them, hey, if you can find a group of people who are very smart, try and join them in whatever way you can. It will just enrich who you are as a person and how you work. So could you talk a little bit of a exactly what it was that made it so enriching like what was your experience with that especially at that level it was definitely very interesting for me because you had obviously beyond Strasdrup, who the creator of the language and there were parts of the language that he had not yet fully specified and so as a group we broke down into little subcommittees and focused on different features of the language to take his concepts and ideas and then fully flesh them out into a specification that compiler writers could actually implement uh, and sometimes they had to change a fair bit sometimes they just needed additional specification but it was also interesting to see how the different compiler vendors brought their own opinions to the table because some compiler vendors had pretty entrenched positions on some of the language features and they'd say we've implemented it this way and we've got thousands of users of our compiler that use this feature and now you want to change it. So we're going to argue against that. We're going to vote against this change to the language. And you had to find a way to navigate through that. A huge amount about working with groups of people, coming to compromises, trying to reach consensus. Sometimes there's just no good solution to a problem. So you have to pick the least worst solution. Mm -hmm. And I stayed with the committee until the late 90s and then began to get very interested in Java, which was the young upstart, and in fact started to do more work with Java and began to really enjoy it. So I drifted away from the C++ committee and stopped using C++ by pretty much the end of the 90s. I, when you were done with C++, I'm assuming your interest in Java then brought you over to Adobe. And how were you able to leverage the information and the experiences you got there working with smart people, essentially coming to consensus, communicating with them, things like that nature, and then going into Adobe and architecting and managing large teams. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. I went from a small company that I was representing at the time to Macromedia first, which uh, was probably about, I don't know, 600 to 800 people when I joined and grew mm. to about 1,200 people. And it was the early aughts, so of course, the dot-com bubble, and then the bubble burst. 
And so the massive layoffs, it was, you know, a strange time to be in the industry. But I'd gone into Macromedia in a very senior role. And I had a team of very smart architects working for me. Uh, and between us, we oversaw pretty much all of the large projects that happened in the IT side of the company. So I found myself split between working with department heads, working with different divisional IT groups, and also sometimes working with the C-level folks. It, it was a very interesting mix of very high-level management, executive decision-making, and also right down to getting your hands dirty with the engineers and working on things. So we've, we rolled out uh, an MQ message system to try and integrate a lot of the diverse systems Macromedia had. And it was, so there were times when I had to roll up my sleeves and actually build some of the adapters for different divisions to connect that up. And other times I would just be managing the architects as they oversaw product projects. It was a very good experience and I really enjoyed Macromedia. It was a very free thinking company. It was one of those where it was okay to make mistakes and apologize afterwards. So there was a lot of innovation. Um, and also at times, not a lot of, of structure to how things were done. And then the acquisition by Adobe was a radical change for a lot of us. I'd gone from being at that point, one of the oldest people in the division to being far from the oldest when Adobe acquired us. And at Macromedia, if you made your five-year tenure, you got a watch. And if you made your tenure, you got a fully loaded MacBook, which was really nice gift. And it was a big deal. They got like the whole sort of company together and thanked you for your service. And Adobe, it was common to find people who'd been there for 15, 20, even 25 years. Uh, so it was a very different culture. And they liked a lot of what Macromedia had in culture, which was partly why they acquired the company. But I think ultimately the DNA of the companies was very different. And I didn't enjoy my time with Adobe all that much and I left after a year and and it's while I was at Adobe we'd done we did quite a lot of work on sorry uh, your acquisition the acquisition All right. yeah yeah there was certainly some interesting work to be had I ran a team that was working on core rest APIs that mm -hmm. sat behind a lot of the the document management systems that they were building out at the time things like Adobe sign that you have now originated from the teams that I was working with back then but it it was such a change of culture and such a change in size of company. Adobe was four or five times bigger than Macromedia, but it just, it didn't really, it didn't really suit me. And so I decided to quit and go freelance and did a whole bunch of, of freelance web architecture and coding standard work after that all around the world. So the journey so far is C++ standards working mm -hmm. with a startup which was a very interesting sort of experience for you and fit your style of intellectual discourse and creativity. Then the larger company comes in, acquires, and does what they do. And then yeah. you decided to, to hop off the train completely and do freelancing, which is basically a way of doing a startup. So yeah. what ended up happening there? So did you travel any interesting? I, or I was fairly was fortunate just, that most of my clients yeah. let me work remotely. I think my first client at the time was actually in Australia. And this is pre-COVID. Uh, oh, yeah. This was <laughs> 2007. 
Okay, when I, so when you're, I quit you're ready. And I actually, I've worked full-time remote from home almost continuously since 2007. Wow. So I've had about 14 years of working remotely now. But yeah, I, I did. I would help with sort of architectural design on large web apps, e-commerce systems. Reviews of code were very common. That was something I was engaged for a lot. And it was something I'd been doing back in England, back in the early days that after I'd been working with compilers, I went to work for a company that did static source code analysis and coding standards. And so one of the things we would do is we'd go around the world and that involved a lot of traveling and analyze millions of lines of code in very large companies and highlight potential problems in the code and things like that. Mm. So I'd gone back to that in a, a small scale way where I was advising on coding standards and architecture. And then a startup in the Bay Area engaged me initially to do that sort of work and then to actually do development and build up a team and create a new product for them. And that shifted me from, I'd gone from C++ to Java and that shifted me to, and we built the front end with Flex, which was originally Macromedia technology and is now an Apache project. Mm -hmm. And that was a fascinating product. It was a desktop collaboration system that lets you share documents, chat, and do video. Mm. So this is back in 2007. And the tech was pretty rough around the edge. So it was hard to get it working and kind of hard to get it to scale. <laughs> and in the way of startups, one day the startup just imploded through lack of funds. And so we just, the whole engineering team were pulled together and they said, really sorry, but, but tomorrow's your last day. <laughs> And so I went back to freelancing again after that. <laughs> it's, it's better to try and flag was too close to the sun and get burned than to not fly oh, yeah. at all. Yeah. And I think in the Bay Area, there's, there's so many people who have that badge of honor of having worked for one or more startups that have imploded. It wasn't the first startup I'd worked at that had imploded. And it wasn't actually the last in the end. Either way, it's very... It's a lot of fun to work at startups, but obviously, you know, where risk comes, sometimes reward, not always. Yeah. So... So you freelance, you join a few startups, I'm assuming. Then you ended up somehow stumbling into what you do now, you've been doing for the last 10 years, which is closure. Yeah, and I, I was very lucky with that again, because I got involved initially as a consultant because a friend of mine had engaged as a consultant with World Singles Networks, and he suggested me as an additional consultant. So that was how I got involved. And we were designing and building out the second generation of their dating platform. And it was actually all built in Cold Fusion. And partly I got involved with that because when we were at Macromedia, we acquired a Lair, and that was the company that had created Cold Fusion. So we had Cold Fusion in house running as a language on the JVM, a compile on demand language. So that kind of stayed there in my background for a while. But one of the things, one of the first things I did when I joined World Singles was there was a particularly difficult problem that involved repeatedly scanning database, producing XML packets, feeding into a custom uh, proprietary search engine and running searches and generating emails off that, which needed to be a continuous process that doesn't fit Cold Fusion, which is much more web-based and request response based. And various people at the company had had a go at it in different tech. And they said, okay, you've got a free range to do pretty much what you want. And I was interested in Scala at the time. 
and this kind of goes back to my comment about learning a lot of languages at university and then I've continued learning a lot of languages throughout my career mm-hmm. and they, if you want to try Scala go ahead and so I built a version of the process in Scala and it was a nice small program that ran very fast and in fact was able to bring down the search engine because it was able to generate so many searches concurrently. But at the time, this was Scala 2.7, the built-in actor library had memory leaks. And so you know, the process ran, but had to be restarted every day or two. And that was fine. We could live with that. And then we upgraded to Scala 2.8, which was horrendously painful. There was no binary compatibility between any of the milestone builds during the pre-release. It was just a nightmare. You had to re you basically had to upgrade all of your tool set at the same time every time there was a new milestone build. And it, it didn't sit too well with some of the other engineers who were used to very dynamic languages. So I started to cast around for an alternative and done a bit of Lisp at university and saw that there was now a Lisp on the JVM closure. And so I figured Let's try re-implementing the Scala process in Clojure. They're both functional languages, both support concurrency. And that actually went really well as a proof of concept. We got pretty good throughput and it didn't need restarting due to memory leaks. So that was nice. And once I got that in place, the other engineers were curious about it. And so I started to cross-train them and we started to write lots of small, low-level pieces of the system in Clojure and gradually built up from that until you know the situation we're in now we have uh, 115,000 lines of closure we have pretty much replaced all of the legacy code base we had before and we've had a little turnover on the team and the, essentially the back end are all closure engineers now that's amazing and i think you've been doing this for quite a while for almost 10 years now and i'd like to without your priming talk a little bit about what you contributed to you work a lot with open source libraries and from what i understand you've contributed to closure contrib.sql which mm-hmm. has been converted converted to closure java jdbc and you from that created actually an improvement to that called next.jdbc and you also have contributed to core.cache, core.memorize, toolci, devstar, CLJNew, HoneySQL, used by next.jdbc, and you maintain clj.time. I would say most of Clojure owes to uh, quite a few of your contributions, I must say. And this is not a paid advertisement, I must, but it's true. And it, that's one of the reasons I was very excited to have you on the podcast. Let's talk about the first sort of contribution, which was closure contrib.sql converted to closure.java.jdbc. So you felt the need to actually revamp the, the that library uh, to next.jdbc. So could you speak a little bit about the reason you did that? And then, of course, about the actual application uh, sorry, sure. library itself. We'd like to take a quick commercial break to remind our listeners to visit us at www.recursive.house. We are a consulting company that help businesses build web and mobile applications and consult to help these businesses with digital transformation to move them into the digital age. Back to our guest. Just to give a little background, um, when I got started with Clojure, it was going through quite a big change. 
it initially had uh, a monolithic standard library, a batteries included library called mm -hmm. Contrib, which had about 60 different sub-projects in that back then were all fairly ad hoc, didn't all have maintainers. And because of the work we were doing with Clojure at World Singles, I needed a solid JDBC library, a wrapper for the underlying JDBC stuff. And no one was maintaining Clojure Contrib SQL at the time. And I jumped up and down and, and pestered the Clojure core team and said, look, you know, I really want to have a well-maintained library for this. And they said, sure, okay, you can take over maintenance. We'll spin that Contrib library off into a separate project. And that's how the monolithic Contrib got broken up from 60 sort of ad hoc projects into about 20 or 30 well-maintained, more focused projects. And so I started working on that. And of course, closure was closure best practices were still evolving quite a lot. This is going back to 2012, 2013. And how libraries were designed was changing. And so I started to evolve Closure Java JDBC in line with what was evolving best practices in Closure. Got it settled down with an API that I liked, and it began to get quite a lot of use. But one of the things that I noticed was that at scale, there was quite a lot of overhead involved in the translation between the raw JDBC types in Java and the Closure data structures that were being um, constructed over. I worked with a few people who are kind of performance specialists. They said, oh, if we could do if we could do this sort of thing or that sort of thing, it would be faster and we could work with larger data sets. And so I started to think about uh, a different kind of JDBC library that would work better with large streaming data sets, which was quite mm -hmm. problematic with Java JDBC, but also would allow you to circumvent the overhead of converting everything to a closure data structure if all you needed was certain parts. And because Clojure has such a, a strong focus on backward compatibility in libraries and in the language itself, the, the feeling is that you shouldn't make breaking IP, API changes. You should really create uh, new names for things, whether that's a new package for it, a new library, or just a new function. Which is part of the reason you moved from Scala to Clojure in the first place. That, yes, the horrible breakages that I'd experienced with Scala. And I must admit, while I was still building up Clojure Java JDBC, I did change the API quite a bit. But strangely, back in those days, not too many people were using JDBC with Clojure. That gradually mm -hmm. got more popular as I maintained that library longer. And I think that was partly because early adopters of Clojure were doing more esoteric things, whereas I wanted to do very generalist stuff. I wanted to do, you know, regular MySQL database manipulation stuff with it. And so I started to sketch out what a new library would look like that was based on Clojure's abstraction of the idea of a reducible collection. So Clojure is all about abstractions within the language. And one of the ideas is to have a collection that knows how to reduce itself. So it doesn't do any work until you hand it to a process that will perform some reduce operation over it. And that fits quite nicely with JDBC because you can say, okay, I plan to run the SQL statement with these parameters. And then reduce can come along and the plan says, I'm going to set up the connection. I'm going to run the SQL. I'm going to start reading 
the result set data. And I'm going to feed you the result set data uh, row by row as you need it in a mm -hmm. way that lets you pull columns directly out of the underlying result set object. Mm -hmm. And then when the reduction completes, when the collection gets to the end, it tidies up all its resources, gives a connection back to the connection pool, uh, and you're done. Mm -hmm. So this allows you to set up a query to run against the database to lazily stream rows out of the database. So you can process an arbitrarily large data set and only have a small batch of it in memory. Mm -hmm. So although the reduce is eager that it runs the entire thing start to finish, the activity on the database is lazy, essentially. And so I went back with the, the folks who are really heavily into performance in Clojure, and they were able to get some very impressive benchmarks out of Next JDBC at that point. And that's where I've kept the library since. So it, it's gradually added some options, but always with a very strict eye on performance that you shouldn't have to pay for an option you aren't using. Okay. So from what I'm understanding, you've separated intent from execution yes. within the context of that library. Yes. So what I want you to do is if you could explain how is it possible now that you've done that to actually make it so that a plan could be reduced early, eagerly, but the execution is happening lazily. That's slightly more complicated because Clojure does have lazy sequences and you can set up a, a collection that is only realized on demand. So as you mm -hmm. consume elements of it, that causes more elements to be realized and the collection to be produced. Mm -hmm. The problem with that in terms of a resource-based system like JDBC is that if someone stops consuming the sequence, you've got no way to identify if the connections should be closed. Mm -hmm. And this was actually one of the problems with the Java JDBC library, that by default, it didn't use laziness but it let mm -hmm. you override that to do laziness. And of course, mm -hmm. it was then your job to consume the entire sequence so that the connection would be closed and tidied up. So I made a decision in NextJDBC not to allow that. So you either have fully realized result sets that have to fit in memory, or you use plan and a reduction. So if you're using plan and a reduction, you're guaranteed that the resources are taken care of and you don't have to have the whole result set fit in memory. But if you're working with the other style of queries, just called execute, it will fully execute the query. It will realize the entire result set into a closure data structure. And then you can essentially do whatever you want with the data structure because you're in pure closure land at that point. But having that mm -hmm. lazy sequence evaluation stuff working with resource management is pretty tricky. So I try yeah. to discourage people from doing it. Fair enough. Being specific about your intent within that library should should really save you on on issues moving forward. <laughs> now yep. that the heavy work has been done with making sure the resource allocation has been managed using plans, at least the API for it, that's amazing. So, I want to move. I uh, see so we've gone rather deep, but I, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about closure in general and <laughs> what it's like to work with it in a startup and then moving forward and as it evolved. You've been working with Clojure where you are for about 10 years. And could you explain what it has meant to be productive in Clojure? 
or has it changed over time? Have you added things to make your team more productive over time? And maybe start with the size of your team and the mm-hmm. distribution of work and how you've been able to manage that. Sure. One of the things with Clojure is you'll hear people say, we can get a lot done with very few people. Um, that's not to say there aren't huge teams of Clojure uh, people. If you look mm. at some of the the big success stories with Clojure, you'll see companies like Nubank who have, you know, I think, three or 400 developers all doing Clojure. We are able to manage that 115,000 line code base with just two developers on the back end. Over the time we've been using Clojure, we've had as many as three developers. We've never had more than three developers doing Clojure on the back end. Part of what makes that possible is Clojure is inherently a very high-level language based on abstractions. So you don't have to think about the nuts and bolts of algorithms and data transforms because you're working with functions that naturally operate uh, sort of at the level of sequences and collections. You're working with a lot of higher order functions, so map and reduce and filter the basic building blocks of what you're doing. And you're also working with a core set of immutable data structures. So you have these persistent, so they're they're, uh, structural sharing data structures uh, that allow very efficient manipulation of them. But there's a whole class of problems you can't run into because it's immutable data, it's thread safe to work with, the structural sharing, so it's efficient. All of the operations you have are going to work on a sequence or uh, a map or a set or a vector, that sort of thing. And so you tend to represent your data that way and it becomes very easy to take your data and do these arbitrary transformations on it. In fact, just as I was helping a beginner yesterday, they had a set of uh, inventory data they'd started with, and they wanted to do a sort of a grouping transformation over it where they were able to pull out all of the prices on a per store basis per product. And their initial approach had been this sort of big nested loop structure. And I said, if you pre-transform the data to this simpler form, which you can do with this one line, then you can group the data and you're very close to the result you want. And now all you have to do is this small reduction. And so their big piece of code came down to two small lines. And they were pretty blown away by that. And they said, this is the sort of thing that comes to you over time as you work with Clojure. You get to realize just how powerful it is. And you start to recognize a lot of patterns where Mm. you can take a fairly complex data structure and see a simple way of transforming it. So Mm. you end up with small amounts of code doing a lot of heavy. And so that's part of what makes you productive with Clojure. You're working at close to the business domain level because you're working at a higher level. And the other thing that makes you very productive is the the REPL, the redevelop print loop. People talk about REPLs and consoles with a lot of different languages, but in general, those are a program you run that you can type code into, bytecode compiles, or it just interprets and gives you the answers. But Clojure inherently works like that. Clojure takes uh, a single top-level form, compiles it into JVM bytecode, and then executes it. And that is how its REPL works, and it's how the compiler works, one form at a time. 
And one of the upshots of this is that if you have an application running and you have a REPL running in that application that you can connect to from the outside, then you can inspect the application and manipulate and modify the application directly from, say, your editor just by attaching it to the REPL. And so the way that you program Enclosure is very organic. You work with expressions and data to explore the problem space and figure out possible solutions. And that all stays in your code as you're live evaluating it. And so you're building up your application at the same time. And in fact, I've done an online talk and a demo showing starting from essentially a completely empty project and adding in libraries and building code while the system's running to produce a running web application um, without having to restart anything. So there's none of this, oh, make an edit, let's compile the code, let's deploy it, does it work? Let's run the test suite. In Clojure, that edit compile test cycle is right there as you type the code. Mm -hmm. So that makes you incredibly productive and it really lets you focus on the solutions to the problems rather than having to think about programming mechanics. If I understand you clearly, it's that, well, most programs, they have their REPL and, and you can play with the application through that. The power of closure is that because you can interject at any point, your uh, debugging cycle, your test cycle, your development cycle is always the same regardless of the size of the application. Yeah, like I say, what a lot of people think of as a REPL in other languages isn't really the REPL in the Lisp sense. It's a console that accepts lines of code and often interprets them or does at most a bytecode compile and then mm -hmm. runs the bytecode. Whereas Clojure is entirely designed to compile a form at a time whether you're using the compiler or the REPL, it's the exact same process. So there is no separate process. You mm -hmm. just, you are editing your code, you're evaluating your code live in your editor, seeing the results live and evolving your functions and your application step-by-step step that way, which is mm -hmm. really nice because if you run into some sort of thorny problem, you're like, I'm not sure how I solve this. Now you can actually start to explore the data structures that represent the problem and how you would transform. And Clojure has things like, for example, there's Clojure spec, which is uh, a way of specifying data structures. And it also, from that, allows you to do things like generative testing, like quick check for Haskell. Uh, so you can use it to generate conforming random data. So if your problem has a particular shape, but you don't have good test data to hand, you can just tell Clojure, well, this is what the data looks like. Generate me some massive amounts of test data. And so you can work with these things very quickly in the REPL, um, working entirely you know, in memory if you want, and developing also the specifications for data and functions as you're going along. So it's a very organic, iterative process that doesn't really have a parallel in most other languages. No, I think a lot, a lot of the languages, yeah, they just have um, a sort of a REPL that you can pass code into, but this idea of injecting into the application state is, is just not present. And I can see how there's a lot of time being saved here yeah. when, 
when your cycle is basically always the same size or mostly the same size, or at least you don't have to start the application again or worry about the state of that application really. You can even inject the state. Coupled with things like quick check, you can be pretty sure of what you've coded within the state of the application the moment you write it. And that's going to save a lot. I, I must say it saves a lot of time. So one more question would be about architecture. And I know you're short on time. Say this as much as you'd like, but I would love to ask you about your philosophy on architecture. And you've been on different kinds of architecture for open source projects, for projects that are in different languages and for different reasons, right? Before in business to anyone can pull this in and should understand it. What have you learned from, uh, from that experience? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, my main sort of sense around a lot of this is that you need to design systems that are open for growth without over-engineering. And certainly that's really central to how you think with Clojure because one of the mantras with Clojure is that everything should be open for extension. And a lot of people like to design systems that are closed and specified as being, these are going to be the only things we're going to have. When I've been working with systems in other companies before I came to Clojure, we still tried to look at building systems that would allow us to easily extend. When I was at Macromedia, we rolled out the MQ messaging system. And so we had a hub and spoke architecture. And one of the things there was they'd previously got a lot of ad hoc communication between all the departments and lots of different data formats. And by standardizing that, we were gradually able to bring each department on board. And so we were able to roll this out incrementally. We were able to extend it to any new systems that were produced. And it was a matter of just trying to think in those forms of saying, okay, we have something where we can add new spokes, we can add new adapters. We don't have to over-engineer anything. We can have a common data format that we're going to work. And that has been guiding principle for a lot of the stuff that I've done with architecture, where I've said to people, okay, let's try and take the essence of the system that you're building. What are the pieces in that system that need to communicate? What is the data that they need to communicate? And then look at ways to tie those together in a way that isn't going to block them from extending things later on. Okay. The antithesis of that statement is that I will not extend this interviewer any longer. And I really appreciate (laughs) (laughs) the time taken. It was great talking to you. And if you could just tell them where to find you, if they weren't looking for you, how would they find you? Sure. I'm Sean Caulfield, S-E-A-N-C-O-R-F-I-E-L-D on absolutely everything, Um, on Twitter and GitHub, and I think on Skype and Facebook and pretty much everywhere. And I think I am almost the only Sean Caulfield out there in software. So if you just Google my name, you'll, you'll find me. Congrats on the monopoly. <laughs> I think I got in there early. I, I was able to pick up Caulfield.org as a website back in, I've had it for nearly 20 years, I think now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. You're um, very welcome. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the RH Podcast. Visit us at www.recursive.house. We're a consulting company that help businesses build web and mobile applications. We also help businesses 
with digital transformation to move them into the digital age.